Hello and welcome to the Modern Reformer podcast. The mission of the Modern Reformer is the edification of the saints through the recovery of the historic faith. I'm your host, Mitchell Roten, joined by my co-host and brother, Brubby Avery Roten. How we doing? Mm. How you doing? I'm busy. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'm glad that you used Brubby, though. That was good. (laughs) You don't like Brubby? Starting out strong there. Do you prefer... Sir, would be great. <laughs> Sir would be good. As if we have no relation. <laughs> we are no relations. So. <laughs> sir, just call me sir. Oh. Mm. This is a good chapter. 12. Chapter 12. What episode is this? 14? Mm, 14. Or is it 15? I think it's 14. Okay. Good. It's around. One four. Okay. Of adoption. An important doctrine. Uh, before we jump into it, that's that's how you know that you're dealing with a good confession when it differentiates, distinguishes justification and adoption, even though they go hand in hand and one begets the other. When you have a, a standalone adoption, it's pretty pretty detailed at that point. So you think it's necessary? I think it's good, yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good to clarify further what justification does other than mm. sanctification, which which most people skip over adoption, right? which begets sanctification. But hmm. I think so I think it's good there that they and this is shared in among all three. I think they use it as that verbiage in all three, but so that's uh it's a high level either way. All of them combined. So it's a void, the Westminster. Second Luna. Hmm. So how would you, how would you, so you're justified, say, March the 9th, <laughs> yeah, 1975, right. okay? When, when are you, when are you adopted? Yeah, these things are, when we think of the order salutis or the order of salvation, it's a logical order. So these things come forth all the one time. It's, this is part of divine declaration, <clears throat> which is different somewhat from in sanctification. Sanctification is a gradual reality coming forth out of justification and adoption, which is why it's after, you know, that's why it's chapter 13. So sanctification in one sense is definitive as in it actually sets you up. Chapter 12. Yeah, I know. Chapter 13, sanctification. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. Just chapter trying, 12 is adoption. Trying to watch out for you. I was saying that's why sanctification is after adoption. Right, because adoption begets sanctification, and justification begets adoption. Right, so uh, logically, now these things come forth in a in a divine declaration. So you can't be justified then adopted later or something like that. It's uh, this is logical. The logical steps that come forth all at one time. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to you, man? Don't speak condescendingly to me. No, it was yeah. a genuine question. I, not that, not the, I understand you stand the concept. I'm saying the way I explained it. It was the voice inflection. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so I think I think it makes sense to me because as much as we have spoken out against the say a prayer, you're saved thing, there is truth in that. There's truth in conversion. Truth in you're converted and you're never uh, unconverted. There's no such thing as a convert to a true regenerate man person that then's unregenerate at some other point and i think this is why because you're adopted as a child yeah it's similar and i don't think it's any coincidence similar to when you have a child <laughs> that you know that's your child 
set in stone. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. So adoption is overlooked. I think maybe explicitly, maybe it's explicitly minimized, right? I think I think it's easy to lump it in with justification and not not yeah. not detail it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's important. God's been doing a lot of things for people. Don't you think? Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's really the Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, what I think, we hold out is God's character and what He does. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really adoption is it's very um, glorifying. It's very uh, doxological. It's it's hard. It's it's hard to read the chapter and not and not to uh, be emotional when you actually understand it. I would say I'm emotional right now. I'm, yeah, I can tell. <clears throat> you look emotional, <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't know you had emotions. Yeah, well, I do. And you you trample on them all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> but adoption adoption is uh, it's one that is um, very glorious, especially when we understand our depravity and the the natural generation that begets evil in in the family of Satan. Yeah. You ever hear a sermon on adoption that doesn't include? An explanation of the Roman adoption and how that's... That's a, that's a common thing, yeah. yeah. You want to go ahead and do that for us? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, but, well, I mean, you could gain... Roman adoption is not a... Um, I don't think it's biblical adoption, obviously. So there's hmm? a very great big contrast. What? Yeah, between Roman adoption and it's similar, biblical though, adoption. Right? I mean, yeah, sure, sure. So, yeah. Appointed an heir... Right. Yeah, um, and so you have in the, in the Roman system. I mean, I guess it's similar. So he can use the language, and people would understand what he's saying. But yeah, the argument would be that was his context. That's what he's. Yeah, so that's fine. I mean, I guess that would be useful you, to the podcast. Now that you thought about it, I mean, it would. I'm just saying that's not like it's not something I got up up front here. Like you know, oh, okay. Roman adoption when I. Luckily, I'm here. I, I always keep that in. Okay, good. If you would like, that would be great if you would like to explain it. How about that? Throw okay. it back to you. So, similarly to today, but also very different. <laughs> Starting out strong here. <laughs> Adoption was a legal process in which you take a person who's not born into your family and you make them a part of your family through legal declaration. Right. So, that's pretty much the same. Uh, that idea. Right. I'm in the midst of trying to do that myself for one of my children. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a great blessing, hopefully. The American legal system, I'm sure, makes it just so yeah, easy for you. They really care about the child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, hoping, praying by God's grace to complete that at some point before he's maybe old enough to fully understand what's going on. You know. So anyway, in in the modern context, it's the grafting in to a different family unit legally, a change of name, a change of status, a due birth certificate. And it's a beautiful picture. In the Roman system, most adoptions were not out of love, unfortunately. Some of them were. So there's really no motivation uh, economically or socially or anything like that in our time in most situations for adoption. It's, it's motivated out of care for the individual Things that nature. In the Roman adoption, it was uh, more so, and this is what's emphasized, I think, if you've ever listened to sermons on adoption, by almost unequivocally and 
that the difference is it was for a purpose of inheritance. Um, so if you're a wealthy landowner, you find yourself, a, you know, as we all do, approaching death. You have no offspring. You have no, no, nothing to leave. No one to leave your wealth to. This is just an example that most use. You would exercise adoption as a way to pass on wealth, a way to give an inheritance. So adoption and inheritance are in the Roman system, apparently, through what I've heard, <laughs> intrinsically tied. Uh, which does does add an element to the theological value of adoption being a guarantee. Right, you're not just adopted in a squishy way of love, even though there is much love involved. It's to a ultimate end. I think is what why people would go down. And that. I think if you're adopted in the Roman system, you can't be disinherited because right. you, you have you have special legal status versus a natural son mm-hmm. in the in the Roman system. Not nurses. Right. Not not in. Not in a biblical system per se. That doesn't carry over. But that's just giving you the context of the usage historically. Yeah. yeah. Paul's context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a Roman. He was <clears throat> Roman citizen, dual citizenship there. I think aren't we all somewhat Roman? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I mean, kinda. I guess. Not really, though. You're pretty wide. <laughs> you would probably be a little more olive skinned if you were. Roman, I would think. Maybe a little better looking. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> we come from the island, I think. We're super pasty, so. I don't do well with the sun. Exactly. I think we're English. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The island. The island. That's why we have vitamin D. That's why we're Baptists. That's why we need to supplement with vitamin D. That's right. <laughs> you don't want to get sick all the time. <laughs> that's right. Sunny D won't do it for you. You need, no, that's, uh, you need the real stuff. You need the good stuff. That's right. Need the good vitamin D. How would you define adoption then, biblically? Adoption is um, the grafting into a, a family of God. So you were once hostile, now you are no longer hostile. It's a legal as well as definitive change of status. How would you distinguish it from justification? Justification is the legal declaration of which that makes you righteous. Adoption is the engrafting into the family now because he gives you legal right to be his child because Christ has that same status so it's the sharing of the uh, it's the it's sharing of the person of christ it's the great exchange more fully uh, adopted uh, more fully put into practice <clears throat> so uh, sorry <clears throat> yeah hmm. i'll say that and uh, so that that's i think that's a pretty decent definition so point one is going to clarify it for you there's only point, there's only one point in this chapter that's weird. <laughs> Which is good because it's it's a simple thing, but it's you know it's necessary to distinguish. I think. <laughs> Chapter twelve, adoption. Point one. Point one. Solo point. Point one of one. All those that are justified, God conferred, in and for the sake of His only Son Jesus Christ to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. 
yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. John one twelve, they do cite, they cite, uh, oh my, <laughs> seven, 18 verses. But uh, John one twelve is what would immediately come to mind, I think. Um, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's in the prologue of John, the work of Christ and how it applies, who he is, what he does. And beautiful prologue, 1 to 18 there in John chapter 1. And in the midst of that, 12 and 13 is, is just where your mind should go to think of uh, children of God, that whole idea. They also use, of course, Romans 8, 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the pretty big theological statement there that we have deity dwelling in us. We have the Holy Spirit giving us a new nature. And we now have a different relationship to God. We no longer cry, enemy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Judge, <clears throat> executioner, but we cry, Father. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Same idea that you've been sealed all the way to the end uh, there. But also uh, about the relation that you have about him being a father that chastens you, chastens you, disciplines you, also provides for you. So there's a lot. Um, I think, I think um, the modern understanding of the family is is pretty pretty bad i think the majority of humanity at our particular time in history doesn't have a very good picture of men let alone fathers the west anyway we'll say the that. west over here me <laughs> in the west so that being said the ideal of a father the biblical model of fathers human relation is to be a picture of a much greater fatherly relation, right? And so, anyway, <laughs> it's something we all should understand, should be able to understand, even if we didn't personally have that, didn't have a biblical father, didn't understand experientially. I think the Bible presents what a father should be, how they should behave, and it's, it's to mirror God's relationship to his people. Right. Mm, in yeah. some sense, even though it's much inferior. Yeah, you should feel the weight of that as a father. I'll say that. Yeah, it's a lot <clears throat> on your shoulders. <laughs> yeah, so point, starting out point one, for all those that are justified, so not one that's justified is not adopted. There's none lost in that process. That's the reason we were saying at the beginning that adoption flows out of justification. God, all those that are justified, God, okay, that's the action here. We're passive yet again in our adoption. God does these things for the sake of Jesus Christ. So it's it's the action of justification in which God begets, brings you into the family of God. And this is not uh, saying strive, earn, be good enough to be adopted. He's saying he does this out of his own rich and merciful grace for the glorification of Jesus, <clears throat> for, the for the glorification of his Christ. That's the reason of which we are adopted for Christ's sake, so that he would be glorified and that he would have a bride of which that he desires. 
to make partakers of the grace of adoption. So he makes you do, uh, he's effective in these things. It's, it's effectual. Justification is not lost on anyone that doesn't beget adoption. So it's, it's propagated and brought forth and finished upon his work in his doing for the sole purpose of the, of the glorification of Jesus. I think this is a good point to bring up that you could experience salvation, be fully partaking in all these realities and not understand them, not uh, maybe even grasp. Grasp, right? So I, th- I think, like we've said before, but I think it really comes down to what the Word reveals here, you know, like it does in all debate among Christians, or it should, right? And um, in some sense, you didn't uh, receive your seal of justification in the mail, followed by your seal of adoption, and then your (laughs) call to be sanctified (laughs) with a divine stamp on it, right? But in another sense, you did receive that. In another sense, it's been revealed to you how this operates and what what you receive from God, what He does, and what it's for and that's you know i guess what i'm saying is you could you could have all these realities and not understand them and that's what growth and sanctification discipleship what the what the word reveals Uh, yeah so that should also highlight to you the active party of god doing these things and then showing you greater and greater the reality of what he has done right in adoption so just because, I mean, just like a child, you grow in understanding. So when you adopt a child, a human child, human human, that child doesn't understand that, right? It's it's purely the grace of the parents that do those things, and that's what's being done here. Uh, and you grow in that reality, and more and more every day, the more that you are sanctified and understand these things. <clears throat> so we get the identity, I think, in in the beginning of point one. If it's all those that have received justification, that's identifying who's adopted. <clears throat> it's showing how they're how they are adopted by God alone, and then what this now means for them, or the position which they now have. Now they enjoy the liberties which they did not before, as you said, of crying Abba Father, of uh, going unto the throne of God. <clears throat> I also want to say before, uh, well, I'll go ahead and say it now. These things are not to come; they're current realities. So that doesn't mean that when he says you can go into the throne room of grace, which is Hebrews, what, 12? Is that four. four? Somewhere in there? Yeah, into four. He, somewhere in, in Hebrews. It's in there. Um, but when he says that you can come boldly to the throne of grace, he doesn't mean in the future, in the consummate state, when you can see him. He means now. That means you do that by faith, and you do that spiritually. You ascend unto the Father and do these things spiritually, not by sight, but by faith. You do these things now. That's also a privilege of receiving the spirit of adoption. That spirit now is also what? A guarantee of obedience. When he cries, Abba, Father, he actually changes you. And this adoption uh, cements uh, your redemption. Not that it's fully complete now, but that it will be. He's called the down payment, the seal. You see that throughout Scripture. Is This change of relationship to God as Father to this throne room experience now that you may come boldly because of your legal position in Christ and you sharing in him, uh, it brings forth these realities. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, is God not the father of all humanity? 
Providentially, yes. Mm. That means so when we think of God as Father, He's He's Father in one aspect to everyone, as in He created the human race. You ever heard of Karl Barth? Yeah, yeah. He, he was a big proponent of the universal fatherhood of man, or the universal fatherhood of God, and the universal brotherhood of man. And that's uh, uh, yeah, that's a big. I think you see that mm, idea echo in our time in a very different way mm-hmm. in the God loves you just as you are. Yeah. So God is not your father. If you are not justified, uh, in, in a salvific sense, right? sense. Yes. Yeah. In a messianic sense. So there's two kingdoms of God. There's providential and there's messianic. So God providentially rules over the whole world, not as father to those people, but as judge, as God, as, uh, as the righteous judge, uh, he rules over the messianic kingdom or, or his church in a way in which that is different because they are, share a completely different relationship. You're saying there's two kingdoms? <clears throat> no, there's two different aspects of the same kingdom. Oh, okay. That's close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mercy. I mean, there's two kingdoms in that sense of which you can be in the providential and not in the messianic. I'd be worried there. But you can't be in the messianic and not be in the providential. I'm just saying that's the change of relationship to the to the kingdom of God that you have. So you, uh, in the kingdom, the messianic kingdom is familial. So that's the reason that the church is spoken of as a single body. We're all in the same family. So we don't get to pick and choose whoever Christ adopts, whoever Christ brings in. We don't get to say, nah, I don't much care for him. Like, that's not how this works. (laughs) You're obligated to those people because you are fellow heirs. You are children of, you are, you know, siblings of one another. You cross the elder brother, as the scriptures teach, that he is truly our brother relationally. And our, in some sense, we inherit his inheritance, right? That whole idea. It's all the sharing of the being of Christ. Yes. So just as Christ is accepted, so now we are grafted into him. Our identity, hope, and praise is only in the Messiah, Jesus. That's it. So as much as we share in him, as much as he accomplishes these things, we have this grace. We, we attain these things because he does. We're adopted because he adopts us. We're justified because he justifies us. We're sanctified because he sanctifies us. We're completely dependent upon him. <clears throat> and that's a glorious place to be. I can tell you that. Hmm. Makes you inheritors uh, of the everlasting salvation. And it's guaranteed because it's dependent upon him and contingent upon Christ action. What do you think, uh, what liberties and privileges you reckon the children of God have? Yeah. So, uh, lots, uh, he goes <laughs> on to, he goes on to define that, uh, approaching the throne room of, uh, the, the protections, the crying Abba father, the change of relationship, all those are great liberties in which the church shares in which fallen humanity does not. Fallen humanity has no right to, to to go into the throne room of God. They have no change of identity. So uh, going back to what you said, that we have a universal brotherhood. We have a universal neighborhood. We have an exclusive brotherhood. So uh, God is the father of all men in the sense that he creates them and then they rebel against him. So he changes relationship at the, at the fall from father to judge. And then he adopts them back unto Father, after the through justification through the great exchange, and that begets privileges that you have being in the brotherhood, 
being in the body of Christ. <clears throat> and that, that everlasting salvation, uh, the, the crying of the Spirit, Abba, Father. And what you'll see here is that that spirit of adoption, which is in you, begets obedience to God. It brings forth this definitive sanctification, not just merely legal. It, it brings forth in reality the fruit of this adoption. That's something that which is only in the elect, only in the church that shares that. That's not common to all men. So we have privileges, liberties that other men don't have. Yes. Vast. Vast <laughs> privileges. What would that look like in a practical way, you reckon? Uh, gratitude would be one overwhelming sense of gratitude, uh, of, glorif- of glorifying this Christ which have done this for you. Uh, here, here on earth, we must live a life of faith. So you say, what would that look like practically? That would strengthen your faith. That would say, this is my position of which I am everlasting and evermore inheriting. As I look more like Christ, as I depend more upon him fully and ultimately in my new body is where you receive this full and final reality of adoption. Everlasting salvation, it says. Inherit the promises as heirs, everlasting salvation. So it doesn't really necessarily look like a Lamborghini in the garage. <laughs> no, uh, so that would make you more sinful uh, if you would somehow <laughs> depend upon more material wealth as in. So what adoption, that's a great point you bring up, Mitch. What adoption doesn't mean is that uh, he becomes your sugar daddy. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, so you don't marry God for his money, okay? <laughs> that would make you something other than a son. I can think of a lot of better ways to say that. Eh? <laughs> there probably is. <laughs> I think that gets a point across, though. Definitely does. And I've used that multiple times, so that's not the first time I've said sugar daddy. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really want to emphasize is that that Literally. throne root of grace, that access is now. You think one of the privileges is uh, knowing with a surety the truth? Like, mm-hmm. to me... Assurance, definitely, yeah. To me, I feel like the number one issue in human society now and always has been um, discernment of truth and uh, ability to have assurance of purpose. I think when you look at, I mean, okay, stepping back, uh, taking off my theologian garb, putting on my uh, very unused Anthropology garb. That is a that's a dusty outfit. You got <laughs> putting put, putting up, throwing that on. I think what you see in the human condition that's irrefutable is people scrambling for purpose and and never really being sure. You know, never really having that assurance and basically, as Hebrew says, living in the constant fear of death. Uh, the constant shadow of uh, today might be the day. It all could end today. And, and you see in our time a very hedonistic move, a very stoic move. Um, on the one end, you see the stoic atheism type idea that we know that there's no purpose, but pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The Nietzschean idea of like uh, the Superman that looks into the face of darkness and says, I know that there's no point in me doing anything, but I choose to. And let's pretend. Let's pretend. Yep. Uh, and that, that's very popular among uh, certain groups. 
And then you have the other end of people that really don't accept those premises, but they're also not willing to accept Christianity and its premises. So you see this in-between type state of people that are like, oh, sure, I mean, you know, Jesus was a man and could be. and I'm spiritual. So in between all of that, you have the same condition, the same issue um, of the grave steadily approaching, of purpose you're trying to scramble through. That's why you see, um, and you hear it in a lot of practical sermons, about the idolatry of children or the idolatry of work and don't make this an idol and that an idol and all those things. And I think the truth behind all that is everybody is seeking, one, transcendence. To, to transcend our current state, which is fallen and imperfect and subject to change and just basically depressing. We want to be part of something bigger, transcendence. Then... A search for purpose, actual, practical, daily purpose. Um, depression, for example, is just purposelessness. At the end of the day, it's just purposeless, purposelessness. Or overcome with things that have happened in the past and no explanation. Things of that nature. So, I guess what I'm saying is the privileges and the liberties here don't nullify our condition. In one sense, we're still stuck until glorification with certain ailments, certain struggles. But um, they, they, they do quote... Uh, and I think this illustrates well what I'm trying to say, but not the best. First Peter five seven, <laughs> which says, "Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you." That that idea of we have a place to go with these things that is not available to any unregenerate person, any person that's not connected to Christ. We have a way to to live that is counter, that is contrary. And not just, you know, there's there's that aspect of uh, take up your cross and follow me, die to yourself daily, expect persecution. The world hated me, it'll hate you. We understand that, hopefully. that That's that's actually a good thing, that, you know, the apostles were beaten and then rejoiced because they were found worthy to be beaten. That, that whole aspect of the Christian life, um, in the midst of that, I think what they exercised, what they understood, was their position before Christ, before God. And it's actually what enables you to be beaten and be joyous about it, right? It's that balance of the the Christian life not being a monastic uh, experience of out in the wilderness. Monastic. Monastic, yeah. Uh, st- torturing oneself to be holy <laughs> in some sense. And I think it's easily, you escape into that mentality very easily, you know. I feel bad about what I've done. I'm going to go, you know, lay on a cold floor all night, you know, whatever. Do something. <laughs> You know what? Freeze <laughs> You know what? You know you know the monkery stories. Yeah. Luther said, "If any man could have been saved by his monkery, it would have been me." And he destroyed his body. I mean, he had—that's reason really, he had so much health problems. But yeah, didn't didn't gain him anything. Gained him nothing. No, and it, it won't gain you anything either. Well, I think I think for all his faults, which are some, mm-hmm. what Luther did understand was his position before Christ, and I think that's what makes him such a pivotal. <clears throat> Figure not for Lutheranism or for all the debates about sacramentology, soteriology, all the things that he actually stirs up in the Protestant <laughs> movement that you know we have defined opinions about and we disagree about. Right. That being said, what what Luther displays more than almost any other figure of the time is peace with God, 
Like his his number one issue is reconciled, and he practically lives as though it is, you know. So, and I think that's missing um, in a world now where we're too busy. <laughs> well, the world now they don't see the need. They don't see the need to be reconciled to anything because they think they're great people. Yeah. So, it, just as you were talking about the utter darkness that is apart from Christ, yeah. uh, the sense of emptiness and loneliness and that's the, for the purpose what you do at that point is pretty much uh, anything you bring forth is just self-medication other than the actual cure and then you become addicted to that then you then you become darkened in that so you see people that don't even belong they don't even care about this reality anymore this emptiness this meaningless because they've they've, they've medicated themselves through whatever sh- short-term fulfillment of which they they chase whether it's pleasure or whatever but th- here, um, getting back, I got a little bit more on topic, I guess, but that, that, that comes back to it. Adoption here, not saying it's not good, I'm saying it's don't look at me like that. So uh, adoption here <clears throat> begets uh, obedience. It's the chastening of the Father. So just as Mitchell brought up before, you see this adoption, so you see the complete change in Paul that he hated God, then he is justified by God and adopted by God, and now he willingly, joyfully suffers for him because of this reality, because there's nothing that I probably wouldn't do to please my earthly father. I mean, that's a big goal of my life. I would like for him to to smile upon me and approve what I do. How much more for your heavenly father? How much more do you wish to do these things because of who he is and, and his gracious love towards you? In that same way as earthly fathers chasten, the heavenly father chastens. So he doesn't give that Lamborghini. He actually helps you fight sin. He actually brings forth these things. So the chastening of God here, chastening by him, Hebrews is going to say that's how you know you're legitimate sons, is that he actually reproves, discipline, makes you more like Christ. And that chastening there sometimes could be a gentle chastening. Other times could be flog. You could flog you at that point in time. That's how the LSB translates that in Hebrews. But so you see that reality is that the Father will not leave you in your current state of sin, but will bring you forth out of that because he loves you. <laughs> so he doesn't, he gives you the things of which you need, not the things of which your your flesh desires. You think people see themselves as the main character in the biblical narrative too much? I, I think... I think selfishness and self-centeredness is inherent in all humanity throughout the fall. So I think because of that, because of the weakness of the flesh, I think you do that in everything. And that's something in which you must be continually conscious of daily. Uh, must You must continually put on the new man, right? You must continually fight this sin. And the way in which you're going to do that is through these privileges here, through this, 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 this uh, understanding of adoption. Because if you seek to earn the favor of God, if you seek to uh, to earn your adoption, that's only going to get more pride, uh, and you're going to get farther away. But when you understand that my relationship is fixed, that he has adopted me, called me his own, I mean, this completely flows out of that and changes the relationship. And, and he brings forth these things, right? So, yes, I think... Um, it's easy for us all to do, uh, to have pride and to look at things and not be self-sacrificing. 
and to think that God exists for me and heaven wouldn't be the same without me. And that's just not the case. Something that we must die to. What's it mean that he has his name put upon them? That's that's the grafting in, right? That's that's the change of relationship. Do you agree with that? Yes. <laughs> no, I think so. Um, I was gonna see what Renahan said about it. They quote. They quote. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18, which says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I could be wrong, but I think that's actually a quotation from somewhere in the Old Testament. Maybe Jeremiah. So, (coughs) excuse me. Having his name put on them, I think, is, that's another thing that's lost in our understanding of, like, the name of things and and all that. Mm, That's a good point. Yeah. So, it doesn't mean that a tattoo, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think that entire concept of of things is just lost completely in our time of what that actually signifies. Yeah, indication of family relationship. I didn't think. Yeah, yeah. That's what that Renan says. That's what Renan says. He says a lot more stuff. <laughs> does he? Yeah, he does. What Simple is? statement: the right to bear God's name, an amazing status. Amen. There. And so, to give a comparison, I think, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is, is that a, is that a, one of the ten? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Sure so, it is. So, people have said, don't say this form of a curse word, and that's obeying that. That's not it. Well, it's an aspect, but it's not. Sure, that, you should. It just falls woefully short. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a very small aspect, don't you Agreed. think? Agreed. Yes, yes. So this idea of the name of God being identified with you. I mean, you yeah. It, it's Renahan got any insight? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so so I would argue that taking the Lord's yeah. taking the Lord's name in vain would be more akin to uh bringing disgrace upon identification with him. That is to say uh misrepresentation of the family here's an example okay here's here's i think one maybe if you've ever illustrated for us mitch maybe if, okay you ready maybe if you've ever engaged with culture unregenerate lost culture and you say you know something akin to christ is lord repent it would be a good thing for you to do <laughs> some of that nature it'd be a great thing for you to do engaging in lost culture maybe you've run across the idea presented that uh Christianity is an evil religion in that it uh, it's warmongered over the years in the name of the Lord. Something like the Crusades or uh, what what happened in the North American context or all the evil that's been spread through missionaries and, and all these things, right? Uh, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's what mm. that is. That's a very good illustration. Yes, it is. You can think of all... Not, not because I said it, but because that is exactly... No, it's objectively true. Th- yeah. That's exactly what taking the name of the Lord. So when you come over... And again, I think a lot of that is propaganda from an unbelieving world that doesn't understand either the historical facts nor the narrative that actually took place in a lot of those situations. But there is legitimate objection there. In, in many contexts, um, you think of things like the Inquisition, how many crusades, three different crusades... 
Um, four. Four different crusades. One was when Byzantine. but that's, yeah. no. So you, you think of history. Okay, to, to boil that down, I think, to not get into dates and times and Charlemagne and God knows what else. <laughs> I would never bespurt Charlemagne, but... Uh, Charlemagne! To, to take the name of the Lord upon oneself and identify with him outwardly and say, I am his, he is mine, I am a Christian. And then to malign that name so that people uh, would be shamed to, to say, you know, so that the name of Christ now is misrepresented by your actions or, or by your speech or what whatever. So, and on a more practical level, level, personal level, the same thing happens when you mistreat your children, when you yell at your wife, right? It, it's a similar, yeah. it's, a, it's a similar sin that's also much smaller scale. And I think that's, that's what's really grievous, right? That's what actually grieves the soul of a regenerate person is that they have taken the name of the Lord in vain countless times. Uh, and, and in vain means you make it worthless, right? It means you had this confession, you made this confession, you ha- and let's say you have this connection to Christ and to, to God, and then you besmirch that. You bring shame upon Him. You see the same thing. You don't, even though we may not be uh, struggling with crusades or inquisitions, which, by the way, those are Catholic. <clears throat> uh, we have done equal damage to the reputation of Christ among unregenerate men. By our actions, you know, mm-hmm. so, and that only really has weight because he has put his name upon us and he has entrusted us yeah. uh, through adoption. So that's the privilege. What does that beget now? Responsibility. It begets from, well, that's a good point. But from God, it permits what? The father never casting off, though you continually malign him and take his name in vain through your actions of what Mitch just said. So how would you respond to that objection? Somebody comes and says, what about the crusades man huh? yeah huh yeah <laughs> i can't be a christian look at all these crusades yeah so uh i had a thought okay sorry we'll come back to that. no okay i'll get that i'll get that next so uh, that begets what it doesn't beget you being cast off from the family of god but his chastening his his reproof his correction and those things and beginning a more sanctified state of what you are in right bringing forth your reality in Christ gradually through your life. That's what adoption begets. And we've belabored that point, but I want you to see that that's what they mean by that he's not going to be cast off, that he is going to chasten. As far as um, we have to divorce God from sinful man. So just because somebody does something in the name of God does not mean that, that that's in the name of God. It takes more than that. So that's obvious, you would think. So... When somebody says God did these things, it's like, well, what do you mean? Like, he's responsible for that? Like, he bears the guilt? I don't think so. So, if you want to, you can have a million excuses for your unbelief. If, that the fact that God is evil or the Crusades are evil is not a good one. Uh, because, you know what I mean? There's, there's no definition of evil even apart from God. So, you have to slap, sit, him in the, sit, sit in his lap to slap him in the face. Yeah, the way I would respond would be... Um, Similar. I think I would say um, we don't believe in God because of the testimony of men in one sense. We don't, we don't trust Christ because uh, 
any other reason other than he has proved himself to be divine and revealed it in his word and the spirits came and given us a new heart like these things are separate conversations so if you if you want to talk about uh the falling short of people that have identified with christ over the years that's one conversation i, I think paul washer gives his testimony on occasion which you know he's, he doesn't speak personally a lot but I, i've heard over the years just in random sermons his testimony was a guy came up to him because if you listen to Paul Washer's testimony, which I won't belabor this, but he had some some Catholic side of his family, basically. I think it said it was his mom's side, and his father was, I don't know, nominal or whatever. So he was not saved, uh, an unregenerate person, uh, semi-acquainted with church things and confused, <laughs> right? Because if you have a Catholic and a Protestant or a nominal, and there's just a lot of confusion going on for him. And he became, over the years, this was by the time he was in college. So over the years, he had become basically an atheist, you know. So a guy came up to him one day and was witnessing to him about the gospel. And his he objects and says, you know, look at the church and all the problems it's caused. A similar argument than the one I just illustrated that you might run across. And the guy said to him, and, and you know, Paul Washer has become maybe one of the most widely used evangelists of our day. You know, but what this guy said to him, I think, is something we often shy away from because of the offense that it produces. And he said, none of that matters. <laughs> like what matters is uh, God is uh, going to judge you. Christ has this identity. I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about history. I'm talking about the reality of your soul before a, a holy creator, something of that nature. And that's a paraphrase. So. Uh, that's that's I think that's what we have to get to is the objective truth of God's existence and uh, yeah. Christ's status as the, judge. The problem with somebody that's asking that question is not identifying with the Crusaders. So you're going to say, "Well, God's evil," and then because of this, you should identify with the same aspect. So if the fact that you live that means that God's evil, you should be identified with the Crusaders. You should be identified with these people that do evil things. I'm not going to get too down in the weeds to the crusades of, of, of all that political action because of all that good stuff. But anyway, so in that scenario, whatever begs the question of the evil in which it exists, uh, of which that has been done in his name, that should be, you should identify with that hypocrisy, asking the question. That's that's really the rub here. Um, the, the, the idea is like, yeah, that's all well and great, and you do the same thing. Yeah. You continually misrepresent God which image you are in you malign him daily you completely and wholeheartedly in every aspect apart from Christ misrepresent him and that's the answer now we as adopted people of course have his name put on us in a different way than is on the unregenerate nations than is on the people that don't that's, know him that's that's the change so, of relationship and ability so point. when Jesus says uh, do good works so that you'll glorify your father in heaven that's because you're adopted, because you're his child, now people can come to know something about him or hopefully come to know you him. You can positively represent him. Yeah, and that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So the chief end of man is to, glory, the, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, because he's a different creature, because he's been adopted, he now has this ability and responsibility to, to glorify God. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Which he will uh, guarantee you will do ultimately by his own authority. His spirit works in you, yeah. and and it it will bring to completion what's yeah. been begun. It's it's a uh, 
I think that's one of the hardest things was for me. I, th- I think it is for most the balance of God's sovereignty and promise and ability to bring to pass what he decrees and human responsibility as that's tough. And I think it's most clearly seen not in election and calling as far as the struggle. The real struggle is sanctification. The real struggle is, I mean, what part, what percent of this is me and what percent of this is him? And the answer is all. And that's that's the hard, the hardest uh, thing to see. But with adoption, you see much clearer that this is none of you. Uh, I mean, it's much easier to intellectually grasp is that justification, adoption, in some sense, are identical. In another sense, can be logically separated as these are the different aspects that God gives. Yeah, um, so it would be one thing for God to say, you're legally righteous, now go on about your way. That's yeah. not what happens. Le- and you're my son. Legal righteousness brings you into the family of God. Mm. And one aspect that you just touched on is guaranteed obedience. Mm. So because God places his spirit, the spirit of adoption, this one that, that changes the relationship to Father, that begets eternal salvation. I heard MacArthur begets say. Begets eternal rewards. You know who MacArthur is? Greatest American theologian. That's it, thanks. I heard him say one time. If you ha- if you haven't listened to the other episodes, you have, you need context for that one. No, what you're saying now, <laughs> yeah. unequivocally, is that he is. The- <laughs> <laughs> that don't worry about context. Okay. So, mm-hmm. MacArthur said, "Fruit is guaranteed after conversion." Uh, he went to the. I think he might have been teaching the parable of the sower. Don't quote me on that, but. Uh, Fruit may vary in degree, in, you know, quality and quantity, but it, it's guaranteed. That's part of conversion. That's part some, of being grafted in is that now. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Yeah. And that, yeah. that that's what he's saying is, mm-hmm. is not everyone will do the same amount of things or the same type of things, Yeah. but that fruit that is uh, obedience and various other things are... Part of it's a package deal in in a real sense. So, Abba, a band or a Hebrew term? <laughs> both, both, both of those things are true. In this context, it would be a band. Seventies <laughs> disco man. Yeah, anyway, yeah, Abba. Mm-hmm. So, so why is that? such a big deal i mean again i'm sure we've all heard the sermons on abba i would hope so good mm. so so why is that uh romans highlights that right romans eight fifteen, given the spirit of adoption by whom you cry abba father why not just father what's abba why is that such a oh okay so so abba is a term of endearment so it's it's one thing so in one sense, the Soviet Union had a father, and it was the state. <laughs> they would never call that Abba, though, right? Mm. So, so that's what I'm getting at, is it's one thing to say that God is transcendent and he is my father, and it's a completely different thing to cry Abba, Father, because Abba is a term, uh, and again, if you've never heard a sermon on this, I would be surprised, but uh, a term of like I say, endearment of uh, intimacy. It, you know, no child, I would imagine, unless you're in old, maybe 17th century Germany, would call their 
uh, <laughs> father, father. They call him daddy, right? But it's a it's a term of closeness, intimacy, connectedness, and that's that's what is highlighted by that term. And I think that's why they quoted here from Romans eight fifteen is that it's easy to miss because we don't speak that language. Um, Abba is a um, Piper would say like daddy. It's like my child turning to me, calling me daddy. It's a it's a term of closeness, not just uh, so. And I think it's possible in the human realm to have a father that's just strictly authoritarian, strict like he provides for you, he gives you the things you need. There's no negative quality, but there's no closeness either, right? This is a term of closeness, intimate connection. So it's not just that we have a different relationship. And we put that down on paper, and we intellectually ascend to that. But we have an emotional, intimate connection to God uh, through Christ. So, anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's it. Defense, it will go on to say at the end of the point one there. He defends his children. Right? That gets protections. Yeah. What's pitied mean? Uh, at the end of the profession? Yeah. Oh, you go ahead. <laughs> so they sat some... 103.13, and uh, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So this idea of pitied is easily misunderstood. Pity doesn't mean like I look on a someone with the type of pity that we might use in our time. Uh, that that term, it's, uh, it's that he sees our condition as, uh, even as regenerate people that struck that that still have this war, and instead of seeing, I think I think what's trying to be brought across here is, on the one end, he disciplines all those that are his. On the one end, um, he'll bring you to repentance through whatever means necessary. We see God as a as a disciplinarian, right? Rightfully so. On the other end, he has compassion. And that's something that's not often coupled in our realm. Yeah. You either have someone who is a strict authoritarian who wants to bring about a result and disciplines you accordingly, or you have compassion. Uh, God is perfect. Yeah. Right. And this balance. Pity, divine compassion. That's a good, that's a good definition. Um, so you see the, the crying, the result of the cry, Abba Father there. The result is what? Not casting off, not judgment, but divine compassion. That's the change of relationship. When we cry out of Father, when we cry out in this distress, He has compassion upon us. We said in the justification episode that, again, quoting MacArthur, that if you could lose your salvation, you would. And uh, if you if you could disappoint God so as to not receive His compassion, you also would. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, this familial change. Yeah, it begets it begets the privileges of that, and one of those is divine compassion. So God's not indifferent towards your situation. God's not indifferent towards your suffering or anything like that. He has compassion. He has purposes for it. Salvation's always eternal. Amen. So you inherit the eternal promises or you don't. You either have eternal life or you don't. Right. Anything yeah. else to say? Yeah, uh, I think we covered it pretty good. Um I'll just say yet again, I want to continually say that just meditate upon these truths. Don't don't come to them 
coldly or something like that. Just just meditate upon them. So your justification and adoption are unilaterally given as a gift, pure grace from God. Uh, next next time sanctification, which is a bit more of a conversation. Right? <laughs>